HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by VisitNapaValley.com, the official page for travel to the Napa Valley, America's legendary wine, food, arts, and wellness capital. For more information, visit www.VisitNapaValley.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. For those of you who are tu- tuning in live, I apologize that we've had a little bit of a late start today. Um, the the streets in New York uh, leave a little bit to uh, be desired when it comes to uh, to getting around. But uh, we have a great show for you today, so I'm, I'm hoping that we'll be able to make it up to you. Uh, today on the show, we have one of the two authors of a really exciting new book, called Brooklyn Spirits, Craft Distilling, and Cocktails from the World's Hippest Borough. Um, we have one of the co-authors, Peter Thomas Fornatale, here. Uh, I've actually known Peter's brother for a long time. He's the, uh, Mark Fornatale is the, I would say, Italian wine... Portfolio manager. Portfolio manager. Yeah, I like that. The term the, of art. Uh, for Skernick uh, Wines and Spirits, Michael Skernick Wines and Spirits, which is, which is you know, one, one of our most important suppliers. And uh, I was really excited to see this book come out, uh, Pierre. Just compliments on it. It's absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Um, So you you trace uh, a little bit of the history of of, uh, local spirits and um, really especially the exciting bars and restaurants who are are using local spirits in Brooklyn – to make um, really delicious cocktails. That's the idea. Those are the, those are the two main prongs. We wanted to tell the stories of the 12 people at the time making exciting craft spirits in Brooklyn. But it's not just a book about the distillate. It's a book that shows you at home how to use the distillate with recipes and other uh, clever ideas from the great bars and restaurants about Brooklyn. And we wanted to capture something about the cocktail culture of Brooklyn, which I think in a lot of ways reflects some of the ideas going on with food here as well. So that was the the tapestry we were trying to weave with Brooklyn Spirits. And what was the inception of this book? How did you guys come about putting this together? Well, Chris and I have known each other for a long time. He was the one of the bartenders at the Old Blind Tiger, 
when my wife and I lived half a block away. So that place was When it like, was on West 10th and Hudson? If you got it. I can I know tell that. you spent some time there. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I went to NYU, and Lartuzzi is on West 10th between Hudson sure. and, uh, and Bleecker. And it, it's probably a good thing it moved a few blocks away because <laughs> it saved me a few late nights. It was a little bit harder to get to. I was there all the time, as you might imagine, and got a real beer education from that place. I mean, that place was one of the beer bars in New York when there were four beer bars in New York, as yeah. opposed to now when there are four beer bars on certain blocks of Brooklyn. Yeah. But uh, Chris and I became friends, and for years we'd sort of kick the tires on the idea of doing a beer book of some kind, trying to tell the craft beer story in a different way. But with all the different ways that that story has been told, uh, we, we struggled with it. And we didn't quite have the right way to do it that made sense. And then Chris was working at a place in Dumbo. He actually created one of the first, if not the first, all local spirits cocktail menus. And one day I, I was in there for lunch with my wife, Susan, who's been a publishing person for, for many years on the children's side, but understands how books work. And she basically said, no, 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 you guys are doing this all wrong. You shouldn't do a beer book. You should do a book about this stuff. Just hearing us talk back and forth about the different distillers and the different approaches they were using and what new things they were bringing to the table. And sure enough, she was absolutely right. There, there was a, a lot of rich stories between the backstories of some of the distillers and some of the new ideas they were bringing to the table. And we went one day for our, our proposal chapter. Not too far from here, we went over to New York Distilling Company and met with Alan Katz. Now, were they the first in Brooklyn? Is that... No, they were not actually the hmm. first. Um, the, the, that is, like so many things in this realm, there, there, there's a lot of things happening simultaneously, and it kind of depends on what what date you want to use. Uh, so we, we, we shy away from terms like that. The but first. They, I, just, you, I remember yeah. having a conversation with Alan years before, you know, Brooklyn distilling in Brooklyn was happening, and he's like, we're going to make this happen. And, and I thought it was just super exciting. And like, no, really, like, people are going to start distilling in Brooklyn. He's like, <laughs> he's like, yeah, but like, we're going to make it happen. We're going to be, you know, one of the first to market. And uh, and now to think that they're, you know, that you're profiling twelve of them, and there's probably plenty more at this point. It, there are there are a bunch more. A couple in Bed Stuy in the Pfizer mm. building who I've been meaning to go out and and see. Um, another whiskey maker and a, and a fellow making absinthe out there. So it's it's just growing and growing. But Alan to me was a great place to start because. Because the guy knows everybody. Mm -hmm. And he is a sort of a historian in himself. He could, if he ever found the time, he could write an, an incredible book of his own. So he was just a, a font of information and a great, uh, a, a great way to, to, to get the ball rolling. Every book I've ever worked on, I've worked on a bunch of books in different realms, whether it's uh, sports or music. And there's always a few people on every project who are so great, not just for the buy-in that they give you, but for the fact that they then point you to five other interesting people to interview. That was Alan Katz on this book. Mm -hmm. Great. And so uh, so you went and visited Alan first, and then where did, he, where did he take you? What was that next step? Well, let's see. I'm trying to remember what the second interview was, but he... The biggest thing with him was really helping point to bars mm -hmm. um, that had established local spirits programs. Because we don't mean... We feature about 30 bars and restaurants in the book, and it's not particularly acclaimed to say that these are the best ones, though I do believe many of them are among the best. It's more we wanted to feature places that are really supporting the local scene because that made it sort of more organic to our concept. So he really helped us get to the right places and find some some bars and restaurants that we might not have if we just started with, okay, we're going to go to all the famous cocktail places. So who is really getting behind 
local getting behind Brooklyn spirits. Uh, I know. I mean, it, it, I think if you go to any decent bar or restaurant in Brooklyn, like, if, and they don't have at least one or two, then I think they're doing something wrong. But uh, but who's really getting behind it in a strong way? Well, Chuker Alley is one place that comes mm. to mind. Del Podro, Podro, a guy I've known since the '90s when he was speaking of that old neighborhood in the in the West Village. Uh, I said Pedro. I think it's Pedro. Um, at, when he was the bartender at the Grange Hall, among the first people making great uh, classic cocktails. When I feel like there was a time when to get a really good cocktail in New York, this is probably hyperbole, but I feel like you either had to go see Dale DeGroff at the Rainbow Room or go see Dell at the, the Grange Hall. And he's got his place, Tuker Alley, now uh, out on Washington and doing an amazing job. Some very clever things. One one drink he makes there that I particularly love is he uses the Sorel liqueur that Jack from Brooklyn makes mm-hmm. and just incorporates it into a Negroni. And uh, and and it ends up being this uh, br- brings all these other fun notes to to a classic, and I, I love that way of supporting the local scene by showing how it fits in with the classics. Uh, so many places, Franny's has a bunch of local bottles behind the bar, and I really appreciate some of the takes they've done. As if we needed another reason to love Franny's. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, they do. Uh, they're doing some good stuff there, and that's some, that was one of my favorite days shooting in the book. Uh, was heading over there and playing with some of their cocktails with some of the local stuff and coming up with some some pretty smart takes on them. So how is the process different for writing a book that is based on uh, booze as opposed to music or sports or, or any, any other topic you've covered? Well, the research is a lot more fun. It's got to be, right? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, there there is a lot of – but there's also a lot of um, – there's a lot of science to it that was that that, that was tricky. Um, just, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but you you really have to when you're putting recipes together. I mean, you really have to try this stuff in several mm-hmm. different ways and determine if it's really better with a quarter or a half. And so you you put yourself in the perilous position actually of having to having to dump a lot of cocktails down the drain because if you drank every one of them, the book simply would not get done. The other big area of difference for me on this book than other projects I've worked on is this one needed to have a strong visual element. Everything else I've worked on has maybe had a few photos, but everything's been very text-driven. And we were fortunate to find a hungry, young, and very talented photographer named Max Kelly, who came with us on location to, gosh, whatever it was in the end, about 40-odd locations we did, as well as a four-day photo shoot to really capture not just the story behind everything happening with Brooklyn and cocktails, but also get the look of it down. And I, and I think he nailed it. And uh, You know, I, I agree. As someone who, who recently published a book, uh, not only are the pictures absolutely beautiful and they get, they give you this great feeling for it, but they're abundant. And I really appreciate that knowing what the, the time and budgetary constraints can be for producing a book, having this much photography. I mean, it's pretty much on every page. It's kind of insane and they're, they're beautiful. So, you know, compliments on that. Oh, thank you. And and the, not to be overlooked, too, is the designer we had on the project, a guy mm-hmm. named Eric Skillman, a Brooklyn guy, who I think took the best of the best and came up with a great color palette and a design that's readable but looks still original. Uh, cocktail books can be kind of samey, and I don't think this one falls into that trap. And I, and I was very pleased to get to work with Eric and the team that Powerhouse Books put together for Brooklyn Spirits. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely beautiful. So, where is the? What's the state of the 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 Brooklyn distilling scene today at this point? Uh, were there were there twelve when it was published, and you 
you covered all of the distillers or did you leave some out and and how many more have have come to market we didn't leave anybody out there was one rectifier who um didn't really feel like being part of the book and we didn't want to push because we weren't uh, we weren't about um, you know th- that just rebottling something as much as we were the people actually creating something here in Brooklyn. So that was fine with us. But the um, as far as I know, there are two new players on the scene, but there mm-hmm. are probably more. You know, it's it's ever changing, and it's one of those things where we're going to see both growth, I think, and contraction. At some point, I don't know what the market's going to be able to bear. Everybody who we profiled for the book seems to be doing well, and I'm thrilled to say that. But you you would think. At some point, uh, the way these things typically uh, work, when you look at the craft beer scene, some of the folks maybe uh, were early, but for whatever reason, business plan or the specifics of the products they're putting out might have trouble. But there are some people in here who I guarantee you are going to be around in 10 years and continue to grow because they're doing it. They're they're going about their business the right way. They're creating product that there's a demand for that work well in clever new applications and also fit in with the classics. Yeah. And so you, you um, profiled, we have New York Distilling Company, Jack from Brooklyn, which I'm not as familiar with. I'll talk to you about Jack. He's great. He's a former, a former model, a former magazine guy, and he makes the Sorel liqueur oh, I mentioned He's the one before. who makes Sorel. Have okay. you had that? It's a hibiscus, a spicy hibiscus liqueur that has a lot of fun applications. I've been drinking it a lot, just warmed up as sort of a, a, a quick version of a toddy on its own. But Jack is a he is a, a, a dynamo, a force of personality that who has um, basically created a demand for a product that people didn't know, either didn't know existed or thought they knew everything about, depending on uh, where they come from. I've seen him. Sorel is it's very common in. Uh, it's very com- common in the islands, and mm. every every family has their own recipe, and many of them are just like tea. Some of them are boozy, and I've seen him talk to Caribbean people about it, and it, it's a bit like uh, watch somebody try to sell ice to an Eskimo in a sense because everybody knows so much about it, but to a person, when they taste it, they love it. Interesting. And maybe it's the uh, the new cool hip bartenders uh, Saint Germain. That, <laughs> there you go. No one likes to use Saint Germain anymore, right? Uh, For a while, it was everywhere, and it, it hits that tipping point. I still do think it has a the Saint Germain has a nice application in a lot of cocktails. We we sneak it into a couple in there for sure. <laughs> cool. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, the, the the interesting thing is that everyone seems to be producing on a on a really high level. I guess you have to if you're you know paying Brooklyn rent. You got. It. Real estate, you, you have got to it. make a, a you, good quality. The, the attrition will be will be swift and merciless, I think, because the barrier to entry in a place like New York is so high. I, I think maybe it's. Uh, Derek from Van Brunt Stillhouse makes that point in the book because that's another thing we get into with several of the distillers is why this is happening in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and why the the quality of it is uh, is as good as it is. There's there's not really anybody just messing around at like a dilettante. These are all people with with serious business plans and offering something unique to the public in their own way. Yeah, and you can listen to. Um I mean, I know we've had Alan on the show, and we've also had the guys from Industry City Distilling. Sure, and you can sure. See, vo- that's great vodka that they make. Yeah, and you can see the the kind of lengths that they take to... Uh, They've reinvented the distilling process, essentially. It's absolutely yeah. amazing. So share with us your, your thoughts on why, why you think this has happened in Brooklyn and not in my home borough of Queens or or Staten Island or certainly Manhattan. It seems like everything's getting too expensive there. Yeah, Manhattan was a, definitely a cost issue. Brooklyn definitely had to do, at a, at a 
at the maybe the beginning of it anyway, with the ability to find space. But I think really Brooklyn, for, for whatever reason, has just been at the epicenter of the sort of DIY food and drink movement. And I think having the sort of built-in audience in Brooklyn because of that is another factor why so much of this stuff has cropped mm. up here. I mean, ideas, these very old ideas um, in food about... Uh, Farm to table and um, and comfort food and nose to tail. These kind of ideas, they exist in drink as well as food. And I, and I think that uh, the, the, the Brooklyn was sort of the natural place for that all to to come together and take off. Cool. And what are some of the things that you saw in your travels going to? Uh, your travels, you're going to cocktail bar, to restaurant, you know, all around Brooklyn. I imagine you have a really good lay of the land at this point. Um, I know I know what hours never to get on the BQE. This was one of them this morning. You mentioned all the, the various traffic woes. I, I definitely oh, yeah. I learned some back back routes for, to get from uh, Park Slope, where we live, up to uh, up to this part of Brooklyn. That's for sure. I was just yeah, a, I avoid yeah. the BQE in the morning, oh, but it was to. still a, a disaster coming up. Uh, I go Lafayette to through it was yeah it was that's what that's what we ended up doing it's just a brooklyn it's it's you know it's wonderful but it's not that easy to get around if i could stay on foot i'm a much happier person yeah (laughs) and in terms of what you see going on in restaurants and and cocktail bars what what do you see are there are there trends are people like spreading out and doing more unique and different things or what's what's going on it really depends on the place i think and different bars seem to have different attitudes about it you'll find People looking for sort of new things, the next thing, trying to to push the envelope a little bit in terms of creating new flavor profiles and, and showing off in that regard. And you'll find places that are that are keeping it rooted in the classics. And and then you'll find every manner in between those those two poles. So, I mean, I think in a place like Brooklyn that now is sort of on the map in culinary terms, we're just going to continue to see more exploration and people taking different uh different tacks to put the best food and drink out there yeah yeah and you guys profile uh steven d'angelo at greenhook gin smiths i'm glad you mentioned greenhook they're another another favorite uh product i've been messing around with uh, with his with his gin a lot yeah we have i mean we certainly have that at, at all of our restaurants and i've brought a group of um a group of, uh, of of our team of the beverage team out to visit him. Oh, and... cool! You've seen there. Yeah, it's very industrial, but uh, you can you can tell what serious work goes on in that little garage. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, he, and you feel like he's like a real like New York guy. He's... Oh, absolutely, financial refugee. Yeah, and uh, the thing that he's done that I think is really interesting is some. I mean, I love the I love the American dry gin, but branching out into these different areas to do an American craft version of a slow gin like he does with his Long Island Beach Plum Gin, to do the old Tom that he does, that he got... uh that he got uh, Damon, who does the Speakeasy show on mm-hmm. here, to to consult on and come up with this flavor profile that just it works so well in, in in various cocktails. A couple of which you'll find right here in Brooklyn Spirits. Now, I I absolutely love the lo- local gins and these local liqueurs, um, but I have to admit that local whiskey has not been my favorite thing. I feel like whiskey needs a little bit more time to age and our our local distillers are just just too young and they just haven't had the time 
to you know frankly to age their their whiskeys to the amount of time that I would like for for my taste. Are you fine? Do you do you agree with that sentiment at all? I, you, I know you probably have to be diplomatic about this at this point. No, no, but... it's a, it's a great point to bring up because when I came into the project, I had a a similar or or thought I might have a similar viewpoint. Mm. As I tasted more and more of the young stuff, I came to appreciate what's going on in a younger whiskey that's beyond just the unfamiliarity of it not being aged. I began mm-hmm. to pick, to me, I feel like I began to pick up more of what was happening with the grains and the mash bill as opposed to just picking up notes off the wood. So as the book developed and I tasted more and more of this stuff, I did develop more and more of an appreciation for it. What I've done and what we have in the book for people more in your position is a couple of different cocktail applications that I think ease that transition to drinking the younger whiskey. One of the things that we have a couple of drinks in there that pair a little bit of an aged rum with a young whiskey. Actually, one of the drinks that Dale DeGroff designed for the book called The Devil's Dew does that exactly, where you almost age the whiskey a little bit in the glass and round it out and bring in some of those more familiar flavors. Now, you know, I'm not saying you need to do that. I'm very happy to drink young whiskey on its own, but it is an, it is an interesting way to, to, sort of, to sort of ease into it and come to appreciate it. Because I do know, tasting with people who know a lot more about whiskey than I do tasting some of the young stuff. I've drank a lot more young whiskey than they have after this project. And the, the, the adjectives that leap to mind are, are totally different. I do believe there's, there's somewhat of a training of the palate to appreciate the younger stuff, but Heck, if that's not your thing, the, 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 there's uh, plenty of other exciting things yeah, and, happening you know, here as I should well. say, I can, I can totally see how they would actually maybe even be better in a cocktail application than sipping on their own. Because what, what the wood does in, in its aging is not only uh, you know add flavor and oxygen to it, but certainly softens it out and rounds, rounds out the, the whiskey. So in a cocktail application, having that punchiness to it can be a, a really great thing. Yeah, absolutely. It can, it can stand out in a way where you might even be able to call your whiskey uh, blind in, in, certain, in certain applications, which is, which is kind of cool. And not in a, it stands out because it's obnoxious way, in a way where it actually makes the drink better. I've been really enjoying using some of the Brooklyn spelled the original way mm-hmm. whiskeys and cocktails. We've had, we've had a lot of fun at, when we did an event at Franny's actually. We used his uh, rye and corn whiskey in the Franny's version of a Brooklyn, which is sort of like a, it's, it's different than the traditional Brooklyn. It's sort of like a Brooklyn sour or a Manhattan sour. Um, but, it, but that whiskey works terrific in there. And um, as for sipping on its own, I mean, I've actually, I've also developed a bit of an appreciation for moonshine, I have to say. I think once you sort of Oh, a moonshine connoisseur. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's, you know, it's the ultimate... It's the ultimate test of tasting what's in the what's in the whiskey as opposed to what's in the wood in a sense. And you know, the, the King's County moonshine, I'm very happy to, to, to drink that stuff. I, I, I like it yeah, quite I a mean, bit. I mean I suppose in that case then the, the sourcing of the grain becomes almost more important. I you know, I think of something like uh, tequila or mezcal or which mezcal you generally don't wood age, but like tequila, really good tequila. The more you would age it, the more you muddle up the, the flavors of that agave yeah. and the place that Absolutely. it comes from. And there's a theory behind whiskey drinking that's the same thing. When I mm-hmm. spoke to, when I met Paul Letko from Few at a tasting, you know, I think he just said flat out, well, do you want to drink, you want to drink whiskey or you want to drink wood? And I've heard another craft distiller, it wasn't a Brooklyn person, I can't remember who it was, but sort of, it's funny how the pendulum could swing so back and forth, but this, this, this young craft distiller described the bourbon that I, you know, love and am accustomed to from Kentucky as, 
Kentucky wood juice. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you can look at it. You can look at it all different ways. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I will say this with 100% confidence. There's a lot to appreciate in, in much of the whiskey coming out of Brooklyn right now. Even, of course, I fully recognize it might not be to everybody's palate, but there's some, definitely some good stuff going on. Cool, cool. Um, and what do you think the the future is for these these Brooklyn based spirits? Are are you finding that anyone is is doing a program where they are aging some spirits, or is is like this you know two three four year old uh, whiskey going to be something that is is kind of what what's to be the signature of New York City or Brooklyn based spirit? That is a great question. Now, cash flow is always going to mean that I think at least for a long time we're going to see. A lot of younger stuff out there. But in the travels I've made around Brooklyn, visiting all 12 places we feature in Brooklyn Spirits, I have seen some barrels over in the corner that look like they're meant to be there for a while. So I'd be very surprised if we don't start seeing reserves or five-year, seven-year, ten-year versions of these. And I think based on how they taste, the quality they're in, and and what the marketplace does, it'll, it'll... those will be the two factors that sort of determine what the future of it is. Maybe there'll be a sweet spot somewhere yeah. in between some of the stuff that we see now on the younger end, which might only be aged, whatever, 11 months um, to, to what we're used to coming out of Kentucky. We'll, we'll, we'll have to see what the future holds. I, I wish I could make more of a prediction on that. Can you kind of think of an is – there, is there an identity for Brooklyn distillers like a, a one unified identity? Is there something that unifies all of them together? Well, I mean, I'll say this. They're all really interested. At this point, you've got the owner involved in every step of the process, so it makes me want to use the word craft in the truest sense. I know that's a word that's very meaning has been debated back and forth in, in, both, uh, in both wine and spirits, but I think the, at the moment, we have the owner's vision through the process on uh, on a lot of the stuff here so it's being made it's being made on a scale where that's possible and you know that that alone i think is important from uh from from at least a marketing point of view to 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 know that what you're getting it has to do with the vision of the of the people behind the business yeah uh, it's really uh i think that's something that's special that you don't see uh, especially in uh, in maybe in the south or in larger distillers, and the the vision somehow starts to get muddled as you keep growing larger and larger. Yeah, there's some very cool craft distilling going on all over the country, but it, it's it's fascinating to me and and a, a great thrill to me that we in Brooklyn are are such a are such a big part of it. You know, I'm really excited to see that Danny Kent's dry vermouth is in here. Oh, you know Danny. I know Danny. I'm a fan of Wakandavini. Oh yes, Aioli. he was the beverage manager there for for many years, and and featuring a lot of his own things. That is a. a it took us a while to come up with a version of his vermouth you could replicate at home but that's something we wanted to do throughout the book is offer uh, brad thomas parsons was kind mm-hmm. enough to lend us a bitters recipe toby Ciccini from long island bar gave us a recipe for his lime cordial and his um homemade cocktail cherries that Beautiful. now you can you can replicate some of this stuff at home whether you're in brooklyn or anywhere around the country get a taste of some of what makes these great cocktail programs in brooklyn special cool and what did you learn about making cocktails throughout the course of of this book? Wow, that's a good question. There's so much. I mean, it was really, I felt like it was a a PhD course in a way. For me, I learned what I'm most interested in is I, I don't think I'm good enough or experienced enough to take 
to like invent a tiki drink, say, that's going to have eight or nine different elements. I mean, there's folks out there, the Brian Millers of the world, who can come, they come up with these concoctions and they're amazing and they're unique and they have eight ingredients and they're all doing something. That's not me. For me, what I came away with, I believe, is an ability to take a look at what's going on seasonally and find a way to combine that with either a classic application of a cocktail or at least a classic template and come up with something that's absolutely delicious that captures the spirit of the season. And that's something I think by reading through the recipes in that book that readers will be able to pick up on as well. It's it's pretty pretty attainable. Yeah. What's the spirit of early February in New York? <laughs> I've been doing the, I've been doing it's well winter so citrus mm-hmm. so I've been messing around with cordials. I'm actually debating right now whether or not I'm actually going to contact this farmer in California to get ten pounds of bergamot to uh, to to make the bergamot cordial recipe that's in the book. I haven't pulled the trigger. On that one yet, but right now I've just been messing with this lime cordial. Mm-hmm. The recipe's in the book, and then I've added, as per an article Toby Ciccini wrote for the New York Times a while back, some ginger. And then I have a local bitters from uh, Brooklyn Hemispherical Bitters. That's a Sriracha bitters. So playing around with this ginger lime cordial, the Green Hook Gin. And a little bit of the sriracha bitters just to amp up that spiciness of the ginger. I don't even know if you'd be able to call the sriracha flavor just tasting it, but it definitely plays nice with the ginger. So that's been my winter cocktail of choice here in early that February. Sounds delicious. That sounds absolutely <laughs> delicious. Um, well, just a huge compliment on this book. I, I absolutely, I really, really love it. I picked it up and uh, looked through the book and then uh, certainly you know, got in touch and, and said, would love to have you on the show. And I think you've just done a tremendous job. The, the pictures are beautiful. The recipes are, 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 are great. And uh, I love reading the story of these, uh, of these local distillers who are doing truly awesome work. And that even inspired me to pay a little bit more attention to local and oh, younger fantastic. whiskeys as well. That's, I, I, you know, that's what I'm here for. If I, can, if I can help raise the profile of these folks yeah. and shine a little spotlight on what they're doing, that's what, that's what this is about for me as much as anything else. Is just to, it's been great. I've been very grateful to be so accepted as part of the Brooklyn cocktail community. And, uh, and I'm so glad you had me on the show yeah. today. Do you have any, uh, any other projects coming up after this? Well, well, I have a day job now. I I write about horse racing for the Daily (laughs) Racing Forum, and I do a podcast over on uh, DRF.com. We call it the DRF Players Podcast. So my my main focus right now is becoming the the Kentucky Derby. So listen in to the show. We'll be talking mint juleps when we get closer. I bet you will be. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll be trying to find the horse that's going to win this race on the first Saturday in May. Well, if you have any tips, let us know. Um, yeah, it, what's, <laughs> so I bet you're going to be a mint julep expert in no time. I, I've, I was fortunate enough, actually, when I, one of the ways I got into cocktails was taking a class from Dale DeGroff back in the nineties. And he showed at the time, I'd only had mint juleps that at that time that had just tasted sort of like toothpaste, overly yeah. sweet with the sort of synthetic tasting mint. And he walked me through the process of how to make sort of a hybrid of a mint julep and a whiskey smash with uh, adding a little orange curacao instead of sugar and muddling fresh fruit in there. And ever since, having the first sort of what I consider the first real julep I ever had, I've really enjoyed uh, that drink. And we actually have a picture in there. My grandfather was a brand manager for Seagram's and used to go to the Derby every year for work. And one year got, I guess, as part of his job, these awesome julep tins. And we actually have a julep recipe in the book that's sort of a, it's a little bit of an ironic julep recipe in that Basically, what it is is Kings County bourbon, 
on cracked ice with a little mint rubbed around the rim and uh, d- deposited in the glass. So I've, I've got my ideas of what a, what a great julep is. They're a little different than, uh, than what most people might consider, but I, I plan on continuing to experiment and maybe coming up with a new variation as the spring comes along here. All right, well, certainly share it with us if you have uh, the perfect mint julep. We'd love, we'd love to hear all about it. Uh, thanks again. It's been a pleasure having you on, Peter, and uh, congratulations on this book. Cheers anytime. Cheers, and uh, thanks to you guys for listening. Definitely look out for uh, for Brooklyn Spirits, craft distilling, and cocktails from the world's hippest borough, uh, and uh, support your local distiller. Uh, thanks again. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 